just wanted to mention that. And for our scripture reading today, uh, John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Eli. Good morning. It's good to see you all today. You know, last week, if you were with us, you probably remember that we concluded our time together as Luke was telling the story about the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9, and we concluded our time together right in the middle of that story with sort of a cliffhanger. And I know that for some, there's nothing worse than a cliffhanger in a story. It's like the season finale of a television drama or something where, you know, the drama has been building, everybody's interest is peaked, and you're on pins and needles waiting to see what's going to happen next, and then it just out of nowhere ends. Have you been there? Uh, for some, the only thing worse than that is a story that concludes with no resolution at all. I actually don't mind that. I kind of like when stories end in that way. But I know for some, it can be really frustrating. So if that's you, I'm sorry that we did that to you last week. Although not, I'm not really that sorry because the rest of the story is right there in your Bible. You, you could have finished reading it very easily. But there was very little resolution to the story we were reading last week. We, we read that Saul encounters Jesus Christ. He's knocked to the ground. God begins to speak to him about his sin, and he is blinded. And not just the sort of blindness that results maybe from looking directly into the sun or looking directly into a bright light where sight might be limited temporarily, but soon enough it, it begins to return. No, this blindness that Saul experiences seems to last for quite some time. He is then led by the hand to Damascus, where he was traveling to, to begin with. That was his encounter with the risen Christ. Well, today, as we continue to read this story, we read about another encounter that Saul has. This time, it's not with Jesus. It is with a man named Ananias. And after his interaction with this man named Ananias, this is what we read. This is how the story concludes, which I understand I'm committing two narrative faux pas. So we had the cliffhanger, and now we have the spoiler. So it, it's, we're going to do it anyway. Verse 18, this is how this interaction concludes. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So it's a pretty straightforward description of how this interaction concludes. But we see very clearly that it was another dramatic encounter. First with Jesus, he's knocked to the ground. Now with this man named Ananias. And some sort of flaky substance falls from his eyes, and he can once again see. Now, 
in the narrative, it seems that this is pointing to something more than just a physical phenomenon that's going on with Saul's sight. Yes, it is indicative of that. He, he can see what's going on physically right in front of him, but it also seems to correspond with some deeper epiphany that he has. He is beginning to see, not just again with his physical eyes, but with new spiritual eyes, the reality of his situation in light of Jesus Christ. So his future is shifting. It has been altered, and he is seeing things in a completely fresh way. So last week, the majority of our time was spent considering Christ's posture in Saul's interaction with Jesus, the nature of the dialogue that Jesus has with him, Saul, who had already at this point done so much to try to harm and to stop these followers of the way from continuing to spread this nonsense about the resurrection of a Galilean peasant. And the thinking seems to be, well, let's just kill his followers. If we begin to slowly eradicate them one city at a time, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight, but soon enough, we can fairly quickly snuff this movement out. And we discover, as Luke tells the story, that these were not just negative thoughts that Saul was having about followers of Jesus, but he was actively participating in killing Christians. If you remember that story of Stephen from Acts chapter 7, who tradition holds as the first Christian martyr who was stoned to death. And, and who is there overseeing and giving approval to the things that are taking place? Well, at the beginning of chapter 8, we read that it is none other than this Saul of Tarsus. And then as Luke's story continues in chapter 9, we see that this Saul, who was standing in approval of Stephen's murder, continues to breathe murderous threats, traveling around looking to arrest disciples, take them back to Jerusalem. But on the way, instead, he himself is arrested and his life is completely changed. And the thing we focused on last week was the fact that Christian faith, I believe, still involves a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Maybe not, and probably not quite as dramatic as what Saul experiences on the road to Damascus, but I believe it still involves an encounter with Jesus, an encounter through which, like Saul in this story, we confront our sin we surrender to Jesus in penitence and faith and accept his invitation into a new life, into a life of service, just like this story with Saul. Encountering the beauty of Jesus Christ changes us at a fundamental level. So that was last week. Today I want to shift our focus away from Saul's interaction with Jesus and consider primarily the human characters in this story. So we will first look at Saul and the process that he walks through after his encounter with Jesus, a process which seems to be one of humiliation, a process of repentance and moving into obedience. 
And then we will also consider the response of this man named Ananias. So the two primary human characters in the story. We begin with Saul and his response when he encounters a God who identifies the problem in his life with precision and instructs him on a path forward. So Saul, as he confronts Jesus, says, who are you, my Lord? Jesus responds, I I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So there is no excusing of Saul's behavior. His sin is highlighted with precision, and Saul seems to accept this. He enters this prolonged period of uncertainty, this process of humiliation, uh, a complete lack of control, whereas he was prepared to lead followers of Jesus, bound by the hand to Jerusalem. Instead, he is now unable to travel on his own. He is being led by the hand, forced to confront his own limitations. And it seems that that period or that process of humiliation is quite transformative for Saul. In verse 9, we read that he doesn't eat or drink for several days. In fact, it isn't until he is welcomed into Christian fellowship that he resumes eating and drinking. Some understand this just as a natural response to his disorienting experience. I mean, he's walked through something, something pretty shocking, something that's fairly traumatic. So maybe this is just a natural response to that unsettling encounter, but I think it's also possible that there's more going on. In fact, New Testament scholar Craig Keener argues as much that this abstinence from food and drink from Saul is is more than just a natural response to a traumatic event, but it would have been culturally understood as an expression of mourning and repentance. So even if he doesn't yet clearly understand what is going on, he is beginning to recognize that he is wrong. And he begins to walk forward, coming to terms with the change that is required of him. He is receptive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and moves forward in repentance. St. Gregory the Great responds to Saul's model for us in his little work entitled The Book of Pastoral Rule. This is what he said of Saul's model that he provides for us. Behold, the Lord... Speaking from heaven, reproved the deeds of his persecutor, and yet did not immediately instruct him about what he should do. Behold, the core of his pride had been dismantled, and then, being humbled after his ruin, he sought to be built up again. And when his pride had been destroyed, even then the words of edification were withheld so that the cruel persecutor might remain humbled for a long time, and only afterwards might he be rebuilt firmly in goodness, when he had become transformed in proportion to the change from his former heir. Gregory went on to suggest that oftentimes, so, so making that transition from Saul's encounter to our world today, oftentimes our stubbornness and our resistance to conviction must adequately be dealt with. 
before we can move forward into life with God. Our pride must be genuinely overthrown in order for us to even receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit with willing hearts, ready to embrace the change that we are being led into. My prayer for me is that I would be willing to do just that. My prayer for you, for us, is that we would be willing to walk through seasons of discomfort and uncertainty, seasons maybe even of humiliation, when, when I am in air, that I might continue to move forward and live into the purposes of God for his creation. But what makes this so difficult, at least for me, is my human nature. I don't want to be receptive to that needed correction. I want to put up walls. I want to resist it. This is what St. Augustine said. We love the truth when it enlightens us, but hate it when it convicts us. And I think a central feature of followers of Jesus is that we are continually growing in our love for the truth, maybe especially our love for the truth when it convicts us. Allowing our pride to be dismantled in order that we might be corrected and in correction find healing. So that's Saul. We'll move on to Ananias. Obviously, Saul gets the lion's share of the attention throughout this story, probably for good reason. I mean, he is the one who has that dramatic encounter with Jesus. He is the one who goes on to do incredible things and is rightly remembered and honored for his contributions to the early church, contributions that we continue to benefit from in many ways today. But in many ways, at least for me, I think the most amazing, albeit unexpected, but the most amazing part of the story might have to do with the other guy that's mentioned, this guy named Ananias. Of course, this is not the same Ananias that we meet in Acts chapter 5. You may remember that name, man that lies about a gift that he had given and then meets his untimely death. So this is a, a different guy. And this is a, a man who gets very little press. In fact, this is pretty much it. And yet this man, Ananias, his impact on Saul's life, and by extension, his impact on the life of the early church is inestimable. He is an inspiring example, I think, if we slow down and give him some consideration. So we pick it up in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. It's fairly interesting, I think, from a literary perspective to consider these varied responses to God speaking to these individuals. So we had Saul on one hand, who was incredibly religious, very well-connected young scholar, and when God confronts him, he seems to be rather clueless, not knowing what to make of this strange calling from God. And then we have 
Ananias, on the other hand. This, I mean, nobody disciple from Damascus, a guy who seems pretty inconsequential, and the Lord calls out to him, and his immediate response is, here I am, Lord. I think this is a really subtle detail in the story, but one that provides perhaps an important reminder for us. And that reminder is this, that you do not have to be important or established or well-respected or recognized in order to respond in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. You do not have to be important in the grand scheme of things, well-respected or honored in order to be on God's radar. In fact, in some ways, it, it often seems that God is interested in calling out to people who are on the margins, people who may be forgotten or seem inconsequential, individuals who have no social capital or no sense of prestige. And I would submit today that those with very little influence, those who feel like their lives are obscure, are actually integral to the body of Christ and to the kingdom of God, including you and I. I think Ananias shows us that on some level, this pretty obscure figure whose impact on the early church is still noticed. I mean, we're talking about it today. Faithfulness to the way of Jesus does not require a platform. We can move forward in faithfulness regardless of the degree of obscurity we live in. For most of us in, there, in here, myself included, this is really good news. And hear me, this does not mean, we're going to explore this idea in more detail next week as we continue to read the story being told in Acts, but... This does not mean that your importance in the church or in the kingdom of God is directly tied to some quantifiable results. Well, I may be obscure, but if I can have a huge, even if it's unexpected, but if I can have a big impact, then my life is worthwhile and my contributions to the kingdom are worthwhile. But I don't think that's the case at all. Most of us in this room will not be remembered in the way Ananias is. Most of us, I don't want to say all, but probably all of us, will continue in obscurity throughout most of our lives and even after death. But that doesn't prevent our faithfulness to Jesus. You may never know the impact that your faithfulness had on somebody else. You may never see the fruit of your sowing, but I assure you, your labor is not in vain. It is meaningful, even when we don't see the fruit. Your labor is not in vain, it's meaningful. And not because you are so great and you're so special, although I think, I think you're special. Not because of your greatness, but because God is working in us and through us 
to meet people and impact people in positive ways, in ways that we don't even recognize or understand. I believe that for each of you. I believe it for myself that we are having an impact even when we don't see it. And we don't need to see it because we trust that God is at work and we trust that our labor is not in vain. So my encouragement in this regard is this. Continue to serve faithfully. Continue to serve faithfully. Even when you don't see the fruit, trusting that God is working and impacting people in positive ways. Let's continue reading. Verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So we have here from Luke a paired vision where Saul hears from God and Ananias also hears from God and they're being instructed toward the same end independently of one another. Again, on a literary level, but also probably for these individuals involved, the consistent message that they receive independent of one another serves to emphasize the divine nature of the communication and verifies the veracity of these encounters. You know, if it's just one individual receiving this communication, well, I could probably write it off, well, that was something weird I ate the night before, or maybe I'm hallucinating, but when I hear, oh, Saul had the same vision, he was instructed in the same way, they begin to put it together, okay, this probably is from God. And even though there at this point is some recognition that the communication is from God, it is still at this point not a foregone conclusion that the divine communication is going to be successful, that it will accomplish anything because the instruction that God gives Ananias is still a pretty tall task. He says, go to the guy, you've heard of him, Saul of Tarsus, go to the guy who stood in approval while Stephen was being killed. Go to the guy who is traveling to Damascus. He intends to continue killing Christians. Ananias has to be thinking, God, you know that's me, right? He intends to continue killing Christians. I am a Christian. So you are sending me directly into harm's way. And I like that Ananias is bold enough to respond with his reservations. It, it shows us that this was a, a place of tension he finds himself in, not knowing exactly how to move forward. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jer- at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We're going to explore that idea from verse 16 in more detail in a couple of weeks. 
But we see here that Ananias has some legitimate hesitancy after he has received this communication. I mean, how many of us, if we were in his shoes, are saying, yeah, I'm out, not doing that. But it is his obedience in these admittedly difficult places His obedience in the steps that make no sense, his obedience in those difficult places changes this man's life. And I don't think the conclusion we draw from this is, well, acting against common sense is always a great idea, because I don't think that's the case. This is not moving us to a place where we're just constantly applauding what is a foolish choice. But we do acknowledge that sometimes God leads us in ways that seem foolish to our limited understanding. And yet we can trust that if God is leading, even if it makes no sense to us, even if it seems like we are being led in a foolish manner, we trust that he is going before us and preparing a way. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think this is one of my favorite parts of this whole story. It seems rather ordinary, but I think Ananias is one of the severely underrated characters in the Bible. His courage and the depth of his trust was such that he is willing to walk directly into harm's way. And when he gets there, his response to Saul, who he had heard so much about and the violence that he was participating in, and his response is not, well, you have a lot of explaining to do, Saul. You need to prove yourself Prove that you have changed before we continue this conversation. No, his first words to Saul, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. And immediately following that interaction, we we read that from verse 18 when we started today. Immediately Saul regains sight. He is baptized. He eats and drinks again and moves forward in obedience and service to the Jesus he had been persecuting. There's so many subtle features in in this story that beyond the dramatic encounter that Saul has with Jesus that are so incredible and I think inspiring and worth our consideration, we find these two individuals who should have been enemies and for all intents and purposes at the beginning of the story they are enemies. Ananias is terrified of interacting with Saul, and rightly so. But we see these two men coming from very different places, both encountering a living and active God, a God who speaks to them, directs, and leads them. One, Saul, is being led out of his sin and violence and into the truth of God's love and salvation. The other, Ananias, is being led into this place of discomfort where he is extending a welcome to the Saul that was intending to 
cause harm to him. But both of them respond to the call of God in trust. They act in obedience, and their obedience completely changes the future landscape of the church. We talked about this last week. If we can maybe set some of the the dramatic uh, features of the story aside, I believe that we serve the same God today who encounters Saul on the road to Damascus, the God who meets Ananias in this vision, leads him into that place of discomfort, and God continues to build his church even today, and I think he does so at times by speaking and leading unimportant, uninfluential, irrelevant followers of Jesus like me and you. I believe it's still the case. And I believe as we respond in faithfulness, living into the life that God is calling us to, again, we continue to have an impact on real people's lives, an impact in the kingdom of God, even when we don't recognize it. I want to read something that scholar Luke Timothy Johnson said. He said, Christian faith has never, either at the start or now, been based on historical reconstructions of Jesus, even though Christian faith has always involved some historical claims concerning Jesus. Rather, Christian faith then and now is based on religious claims concerning the present power of Jesus. Christian faith is not directed toward a human construction about the past that would be a form of idolatry. Authentic Christian faith is a response to the living God whom Christians declare is powerfully at work among them through the resurrected Jesus. As we reflect on this story, we're going to gather around the table of our Lord, but I'd like us to do so today with this in mind, that we worship and serve a God who is today, I believe, active and present. The God that we meet at this table, I believe, intends to actually meet with us. This is not just something we are remembering, but we are meeting the risen Christ. Everything that we do in this worship service is toward that end, an encounter with God in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to stand, and as we do, you know, early Christians would often pray, a very simple prayer when approaching the table of the Lord, when approaching the Eucharist. Um, and, And the prayer simply goes like this. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. That is our prayer today. I believe that the Holy Spirit makes this meal for us an occasion for an encounter with the presence of God. The Spirit enables in this meal, yes, a past remembrance of the death of Jesus, but also a present encounter with God as well as an expression of our future hope that Christ will come again. So as we come to the table of our Lord today, I want to invite you to declare with me the mystery of our faith. It should be on the screen behind me in just a moment. I want to invite you to declare this with me, and then I'll say a prayer and invite you to the table. 
If you're, if you're new or visiting, we'll just make two lines down these two center aisles. You'll come take the elements on your own. You'll hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. But let's declare together the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.